Our scripture reading this morning is Genesis chapter 1, which you can find on page 1 of your pew Bibles if you'd like to follow along. Genesis 1, chapter 1, verse 1, page 1 of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. And it was so. God called the expanse sky. And there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land. And the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night. And let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the water team with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living and moving thing with which the water teems according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that move along the ground, and wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man, humans, in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man, humans, in his own image. 
In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. Let's pray together. O oh God, descend on us by your spirit through the words of our brother, Neil. He has no special knowledge of his own despite his great learning, but you have anointed him to be an elder of this church, a minister of the word. And I pray that he would feel that blessing that you give to your ministers as they come to preach, that you would empower him by your spirit and that you would make our hearts ready to listen, eager to hear your words preached by a mere man. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Yuri. I do think that Yuri and I are amongst the busiest people in Winnipeg today. Uh, we were at a concert at Yuri's house last night where uh, he and his uh, beautiful wife and very talented son played uh, piano, and it was really quite amazing. Um, we were very grateful to be there. And then I think Yuri's participating in that again uh, tonight. Uh, I've been doing the whole service for us here, so he's got lots on the go. Um, it, it was interesting. I got a text after last Sunday service, and, and Yuri asked me what I was preaching on today. He wanted to have something for the bulletin, and I said, well, I'm not preaching on Sunday. Um, Mark has somebody else preaching. Pastor Mark's going to be away, but we know somebody else is going to be preaching. And did a little bit of looking through my history of text with Pastor Mark, and I was indeed preaching, and so I am indeed preaching today. So I ask for your grace uh, if things seem a little jumbled today. Um, clearly, Mr. Google knows that I've been looking for uh, the, the biblical source of creation and what man thinks about evolution and a lot this week, so I just, I just ask for your grace. So th thank you for giving it to me in advance. So Yuri has read from what is really uh, iconic scripture about God creating, those uh, familiar verses from Genesis 1. And uh, Genesis 1 uh, is something that has such dense information packed into it, really those first three chapters of Genesis, just densely packed with information about the way God created the heavens and the earth and how that affects our human relationship. There's really so much there. And then if you're like me, uh, a person who kind of came from a background of science, and if you're in the scientific disciplines right now, you're certainly being taught that evolution is fact. And we get questions. And so we're going to move back to the area of questions before we dive back into the Advent theme uh, for, the, for this service. And so questions have been posed to Pastor Mark, and then some of these will probably reflect some of the questions you may have uh, as a person. I'm a young scientist. Evolution is taught as fact. How am I to interpret the biblical creation myth? Is Genesis 1 merely an allegory? 
Doesn't evolution prove that God doesn't exist? I believe in evolution. If I become a Christian, do I have to reject science? Do I have to believe in creation to be a follower of Jesus? Do I have to reject evolution to be a follower of Jesus? Can I believe in both evolution and creation? These latter questions, can I believe in these disparate areas and still become a follower of Jesus, as so many things do in our world, remind me of one of my favorite stories in the Bible. And that story of Jesus on the cross with the two criminals. And Luke 23 brings us this dramatic image. And these two thieves on the cross were presumably scoundrels and had not done much right in their lives. We have no idea about their beliefs. We don't know if they were creationists or not. We don't know what they believed. One of the criminals who hung hurled insults at Jesus. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said? Since are you, you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly for what we are getting, what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. So if you believe that Jesus is Lord, the King of Kings, it doesn't matter really what else you believe. That relationship will come as it did in my life. I was a staunch evolutionist when I began to believe in Jesus Christ. And now I'm a staunch creationist. Uh, and it's taken time for that to happen. But if I was on the cross with Jesus and I acknowledged him and I firmly believed in evolution, I would go to heaven eternally. So I love that image of Jesus. I have a couple of disclaimers. So first of all, I'm going to present to you some data that would indicate that if you're affiliated with the university, some of the ideas that I'm going to uh, share with you today uh, are not approved by the university milieu. And so I want to say that the thoughts that I'm going to share with you today are my own. Uh, they're not in necessarily endorsed uh, by the universities that I serve. Uh, and so I say some of these things with some trepidation. Uh, also, these aren't necessarily the thoughts of the church in general. Uh, I'm presenting to you ideas that I think most of you will find reasonable. Um, so let's just look at these things together, I think, with some grace today as we handle these difficult areas. I'll also say to you that most scientists believe that evolution is true. Most scientists believe that evolution is true. I tend to be a both-and guy, as uh, the Padre, Padre, I hope you're watching, down there in Kentucky. And we get either-ors a lot in life. It's either evolution or it's creation. I'm usually a both-and guy. As we go through today's talks, well, well, it's hard to be a real both-and person when it comes to creation and, and evolution. And I'll hopefully have those ideas well thought out for us. Let's get our terms straight. So we have this idea of creation, creation ex nihilo. The Lord created things out of nothing. And Yuri read beautifully from the first chapters of Genesis, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, many theologians are just amazed at the complexity and dense nature of the information in those first five words, in the beginning, God created. And that's really the rub. Do you believe that in the beginning, God created? The creation of the universe, the creation of everything, the creation of the principles. We'll talk about what the implications of, of that are later. But in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And as we heard in Genesis 1, it was good, good, good. That is a beautiful Edenic paradise that we're contemplating. So what about evolution? Here's the definition, the definition of evolution directly out of the Merriam-Webster dictionary. Evolution is descent with modification from pre-existing species. It's the cumulative inherited change in a population of organisms through time, 
leading to the appearance of new forms. The process by which new species or populations of living things develop from pre-existing forms through successive generations. The scientific theory explaining the appearance of new species and varieties through the action of various biological mechanisms such as natural selection, genetic mutation, genetic drift, or hybridization. And then it's very similar to the definition of Darwinism, and these are all under a, a kind of a rubric of naturalism, and that's a theory of the origin and perpetuation of new species of animals and plants that offspring of a given variety of organism vary, and that natural selection favors the survival of some of these variations over others. That new species have arisen and may continue to arise by these processes, and that widely divergent groups of plants and animals have arisen from the same ancestors. That's a fairly reasonable definition. What you'll kind of see is that absent from these definitions is really any idea of our origin. How, was, how, was, how did everything come to be? It seems to me that the definition of evolution starts with existing life, and in fact, that's the exact definition I read to you first, the modification of existing species. So evolution in, really is not an origins argument. It's not in the beginning, evolution created the heavens and the earth. That's not what it says. And I think we can see that there's often some spin in these types of things, and as you hear various origin arguments, they often find me, they, I find them lacking, requiring as much faith as it does to believe that God created the heavens and the earth. And we have two sub-definitions we've heard of, this idea of microevolution. So that's simply variation within a species. That's what really started it all with Darwin on the Galapagos Islands looking at the beaks of finches that if there was a deep hole, those finches seemed to have long beaks, and if there was a shallow hole, those finches seemed to have short beaks. And that was microevolution, variations within a species. This idea of macroevolution, where the, the origin stories or the development of new species. And I think that's a more controversial area. What about our current culture? What is the current culture if you're a creationist? Where do you fit in in the, the current cultural milieu? You'll hear me referring to Richard Dawkins. Dawkins is a famous British uh, scientist who really does seem to have it in for religion. He's written texts against religion and texts uh, promoting evolution. So Darwin says this kind of insulting thing, creationism, God's gift to the ignorant. This doesn't really seem like somebody who's open to intellectual diversity or we're in a big tent and we're very tolerant of one another's views, the things that we're, I think, supposed to have in, in modern kind of university-based culture. Um, so a gift to the ignorant. Here's another uh, person who has, I think, felt some of the difficulties with being a creationist in the current culture. His name Mark Armitage, a scientific evangelical Christian uh, was fired from his job as a lab technician at California State University in Northridge, California, because he published a paper that celebrated his creationist beliefs. Uh, a few years earlier, he was made widely famous by discovering one of the most amazing fossils in work in Glendive, Montana, fired from his job for being a creationist. Again, back to Dawkins. You cannot be both sane and well-educated and disbelieve in evolution. The evidence is so strong that any person, sane or educated, has to believe in evolution. So, I guess I could ask you a question. Uh, if you don't believe in evolution, then you're either not sane or you're not very well-educated. Well, so I look at myself and I say, do I believe in microevolution? And I think that I'll tell you that the answer is yes, I do. Do I believe in macroevolution? And I think I'll tell you that the answer is no. So perhaps I'm neither sane nor educated. So as Yuri said, the only reason you're going to listen to me is hopefully that God is inspiring these words. So evolution is a fact. You have your inner fish. You, you're just an evolutionary offshoot of fish and birds. Why evolution is true. Evolution, the greatest show on earth. 
So if this is true, how do we, as reasonable people who want to be taken seriously in life, believe in creation? Can we be creationists without being idiots? Is that possible? Well, many artists have inspired this creation idea. And so the central truths we'll review today are as follows. The Bible teaches clearly that God created the cosmos. And it's not just in, in Genesis. It's really from Genesis to Revelation. And it has strong implications for you as a person that God created everything. And those implications are even sweeter for the Christian. And we'll talk about that. Evolution is a theory that explains changes in existing organisms. That is the true definition of evolution. I would say in my view that evolution does not have a robust explanation for the origin of life. I don't think that that exists. It clearly doesn't deal with our purpose or our destiny. And I think you and I as people with hearts and souls crave this idea of purpose and destiny. Life, especially human life, and from where I sit, especially the human body, provide a glimpse of the majesty of God as an engineer, as a creator, as a sculptor, as an artist. It gives us an opportunity for worship to contemplate our bodies. Yes, our bodies fail after the fall, but they are still, in my view, miraculous. Even Darwin himself had some questions about this. So these are quotes directly from Dar Darwin. I did my best to verify, fact check that these were legitimate quotes. And I think everything I'm gonna present to you today are legitimate quotes from Darwin. Darwin gets kind of a difficult go on both sides. The impossibility of conceiving that this grand and wondrous universe with our conscious selves arose through chance seems to be the chief argument for the existence of, uh, existence of God. But whether this is true, an argument of real value, I have never been able to decide. And as you read various autobiographies of Darwin, you can see him wrestling with the ideas of a creator and of an abyss where there is no creator. So is evolution a fact? Is evolution true? Does evolution prove that God does not exist? I would say to you that microevolution is as close to fact, I think, as we can see in, in science. I think it's also completely compatible with post-fall Judeo-Christian thinking. I do, however, think there are several reasonable scientific problems with the theory of macroevolution, not really with microevolution. The first is that of irreducible complexity, that the cell is, at even its smallest area, has numerous structures that are interdependent and parts that need to be present to work together that seem to kind of stretch credulity that even a single cell could have come to de develop randomly. I live with a person who's exceptionally organized, and I'm thankful for that. And our bodies are exceptionally organized. But again, the body being so organized requires an organizer. There's a staggering complexity of bigger life forms, larger organisms, and that staggering complexity, not the small, irreducible complexity of a cell, but all the systems that make up your body are not well explained, in my view, by evolution. The second law of thermodynamics is frequently quoted, this idea of entropy, that things move from order to chaos, does not seem to support the idea that the human body would have started with one cell and then come to the 30 trillion cell masterpiece you see. The instructions for life seem to come out of nowhere. And then information written in what's called DNA is often called a code. And most of us know that things when we're called written and code require a writer and a coder. So complexity was a problem even for Darwin. Darwin said in 1872, to propose that the eye could have been formed by natural selection seems, I freely confess, absurd 
in the highest possible degree. And people have used the eye as a way of criticizing the evolutionary theory as a, as a way of accounting for, for life. But complexity definitely is a problem for the evolutionary theory. There seems to be an explosion of genetic information in something called the Cambrian period, which is largely inexplicable in Darwinian theory. DNA, our genetic code, is a parts list. It tells the, 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 the source what they need to get to make the, the, the cell and the rest of the human body, but there's no plan. You could give me all the things I need to build a house, but unless I have a plan, foundation first, then the walls, not roof first, you have to have a specific plan and DNA does not contain a plan. You know that kind of uh, evolution is ba based on this idea of mutations of pre-existing DNA that lead to new life forms. But in general, most mutations are either neutral or negative. A beneficial mutation is really quite rare. And most mutations are really biochemical in nature. Uh, a simple example is bacterial resistance to antibiotics. Um, there's something called methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus. It's a bug that penicillin no longer works to kill. But that's a biochemical change. It's still Staphylococcus aureus. It's not a new species. It's a species with a change. They've done fruit fly mutation changes. They've altered the genes at virtually every level of the fruit fly. And they found that every time they made a genetic alteration to the fruit fly, either there was no change to the fruit fly, the fruit fly was diminished, or the fruit fly was dead. And these are experiments that it, we don't really talk about when we consider the theory. So I think we can say that species change over time, and that's, I think, the most evidentiary part of the theory of evolution, the most robust part of the theory. I think it's fair to say that evolution is a highly developed theory to account for interspecies variation. I don't think that's incompatible with Christian thought at all. However, there are many, many reasonable critiques, again, of evolution as a theory. I'm going to shift gears now, and we're going to look at some of the, in what I think is the positive view that the human body, that life as we know it, really does scream for a creator. And we'll talk a bit about some of those ideas. I would say that uh, as working with the body on a regular basis, I am absolutely gobsmacked by life. I'm astounded by the incredible goal attainment that our body has every second of our lives. Our hearts start uh, uh, pumping at about the second uh, to fourth week while the child uh, is in utero. And if you're 80, your heart has probably pumped over three billion times in perfect rhythm. Your kidneys filter out waste and maintain electrolyte and fluid balance without you even thinking about it all day long. You've got eight billion nerve cells in your body and you trust your eight billion nerve cells to be quiet if there's no threat and to be loud if there's a threat you need to respond to. And they work almost perfectly. You have this crazy molecule in your body called hemoglobin that's perfectly designed to bond with carbon dioxide and oxygen and go to these beautiful membranes in your lungs and take the oxygen through this incredibly thin membrane in your lung that's right beside a blood vessel and take that to every part of your body without you thinking about it even when you're sleeping. The lungs open and close, expand, contract, and deep parts of your ancient brain do it for you. You really don't even have to think it. Your body cannot survive out of a very shallow window of temperature that seems to be the temperatures that are here on Earth. You have to have very specific amounts of sodium and potassium and other things in your body so that if your potassium is just a little below the level of three, you can't move your muscles. You can't move. If your sodium just gets a little bit too low, you can't stand up and you don't think very well. Two little things, sodium and potassium, things you put on your, your food at, at the end of the day. 
So I would tell you that humans are the pinnacle of this complexity. They're the pinnacle of creation as Yuri read to us as well. Did you know that you're made up of 30 trillion cells? That's a lot of cells. That there are 200 types of cells that make up your body that work together in virtually perfect interdependent harmony. 200 cells as part of the 30 trillion. And did you know that you've got guests on board? That you've got about 30 trillion bacteria living on your skin and in your gut? And without them, you don't live very well. It's kind of amazing to think about it. That somehow we had this one little cell that started in the primordial soup and it was able to organize this 30 trillion cell masterpiece with 200 varieties that seem to be able to reproduce and look after each other? I don't know, that would seem in my mind to take quite a bit of faith. Well, but you know, Doc, that's a lot of cells. 30 trillion, I, I hear you, but we did have billions of years to add these cells, and couldn't it be just like Lego pieces that they gradually link up to each other and the Lego pieces now, yeah, it's just like little cells. They all kind of came together. So would be about 6,000 cells per year increasing together in complexity, but that's okay. But this is the benefit of having an old guy preach on this, because I'm really old, and when I was in, 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 in early science, this is how we drew this cell. It was a pretty basic looking structure. The little membrane around the area was just black and you know, you could imagine those guys kind of piling into each other and they could add up and maybe they're sticky on the outside because that's the way they work. And they could stick together and somehow do this little zen thing back and forth. I got your back, you got my back, yeah, we're good. And to be, to be really honest, as I was reading through some of the things this week, that's kind of the language that even magazines as esteemed as Scientific American talk about with the evolution of cellular life. But that's not how cells look. Cells look more like this. Irreducibly complex material inside one cell of your body looks like that. Well, how did that just happen in the primordial soup? How did that complex organization in the primordial soup take place? Well, it's, it's kind of not widely known, but the cell was modeled after an all-inclusive resort in Mexico. So God isn't that creative after all. So when I reflect on this amazing complexity and intricacy specialty, harmony, majesty of the human body, I can't get to random. I can't get to unguided. I can't get to blind. I can't get to chance. I get to gifted designer. I get to creator. I get to God. It's not just the entire human body, as I've said, that seems to reflect this. A single cell is irreducibly complex. And this was popularized in this text, Barwin, Darwin's Black Box. And Michael Behe, uh, a, a scientist and, and researcher, published this book looking at the irreducible complexity of the cell. And Behe writes this, Moreover, the more we discover about the cell, the single cell, the more we are learning that it functions, that it functions like a miniature factory, replete with motors, powerhouses, garbage disposals, guarded gates, transportation corridors, and most importantly, central processing units. The central information processing machinery of the cell runs on a language-based code composed of irreducibly complex circuits and machines. The myriad enzymes used in the process that convert genetic information in DNA into proteins are themselves the genetic information that converts DNA into proteins. Many fundamental biochemical systems won't function unless their basic machinery is intact. So how does such complexity evolve via a blind and undirected Darwinian process of numerous successive slight modifications? Since cellular language requires an author and microbiological machines require an engineer, 
and genetically encoded programs require a programmer. Increasing numbers of scientists feel the best explanation is intelligent design. And intelligent design gets a lot of pushback if, if we try to teach it in schools. Now, if you're a fan of SpongeBob, you'll recognize who this guy is. I'm not a fan of SpongeBob. But nonetheless, this guy's got big ears. Uh, and as the, the, the pandemic has gone on, my ears are getting bigger, so I'm becoming more insecure about them as the mask pulls your ears farther forward at the end of your day. But let's look at the ear. Um, the eye has been written a lot about as a refutation for the process of evolution. I think the ear is even more miraculous, and I'm just going to do a brief show and tell. So there's the ear, and towards the inner part of that diagram, you see something that looks like a snail. And that little snail is called the cochlea, and it's called the inner ear. The inner ear is a fascinating piece of your human anatomy. So we see here some sound impulses coming through what's called the external auditory canal, and the sound impulses hit the tympanic membrane, your eardrum. And the eardrum then vibrates, and it interacts with three little bones, and the three little bones kind of look like this. Amazingly, they look like they've been carved by a carver. These three little bones, they're each smaller than a centimeter. They're about the size of a piece of rice in your inner ear. And those little bones then vibrate from the tympanic membrane, and that is coded at the level of the cochlea into electrochemical impulses that go to the auditory part of your brain so you can hear. That's happening right now. Are you listening? Barak is not even awake. <laughs> Did somebody laugh? Oh, thank you. It was funny. So, even, so hearing is, this seems crazy. How does that work? How does hearing work? Those, those crazy looking bones, the malleus, the inkies, and the stapes. And there's kind of the whole architecture of the cochlea. And what you'll notice is to the left, to the left of your view are the so-called semicircular canals. And we have these semicircular canals in our inner ear. One is directly horizontal, one is directly vertical, and one is at 45 degrees. And those semicircular canals are filled with specialized fluid and specialized nerve cells so that when I turn my head in space, it communicates to my eyes, to my neck, to my feet, so I don't trip, so I can maintain two cameras with one visual field as one image on my brain all the time. It's pretty wild when you think about it. So they have special sensitive aspects to how you move your head, and then inside them, at the more microscopic level, there's these little hair cells. And if you think of these little hair cells as being electrical conductors, and then on top of the hair cells is something bigger called the cupula, and then it's the fluid inside your inner ear is specially electrically charged fluid. So when I move my head this way, it tells my entire body to control the head so it doesn't fall to the ground. Electrochemical impulses through these hair cells in the inner part of your ear. And if they don't work, you can't stand up. If they don't work, you can't stand up. And I find that pretty amazing. So there's that kind of ultra-structural view of these little hair cells, small nerves, the cupula on top, the fluid in the area especially charged, and then it goes down a nerve. And the nerves are pretty cool-looking structure, but the nerve's even cooler than that because the nerve is... The hardest thing in first-year medicine is figuring out this crazy idea of the action potential, how nerves send forth information. And they have, your nerves have these little things called pumps, and they pump sodium in and potassium out. And there's little channels in the nerve for sodium to go in, potassium to go out, and if you don't have the right amount of sodium and potassium, you can't move your muscles. So it's got to be just perfect. And these structures have a propagation of this electrochemical impulse from the inner ear, from Yuri talking to me that I can hear when I move my head, going down the action potential, but it's not that. It now we're gonna have to hit a synapse, and we're gonna have to go from one nerve to the next nerve. And in this synapse, if you're depressed, you're taking a medicine to fix the serotonin in the synaptic cleft, but it's even more amazing than that. At the synaptic cleft, there's this crazy stuff. Neurotransmitters are released in little packets, and they're absorbed in little packets. And if I have the wrong amount of those little packets of information, I can't think well, and I'm sad, I don't move well, and the whole body's off. 
but it just seems to work. Wow. And that just happened. <laughs> Through chance, undirected. I don't want to make fun of that. I can't get to that. Undirected, chance. The, the evolutionists don't like the term random. I read many papers this week about why they don't like the term random, but those papers seemed really random to me, and they weren't convincing. So I read this paper uh, called, by a, a French uh, evolutionist on the evolution of the, the mammalian ear, and I think, I just this is verbatim, I'm reading this paper, and just, just listen to it. Encapsulated within the temporal bone and comprising the smallest elements of the vertebrate skeleton, the ear is key to multiple senses, balance, posture, control, gaze stabilization, and hearing. The transformation of the primary jaw joint into the mammalian ear ossicles is one of the most iconic transitions in vertebrate evolution. But the drivers of this complex evolutionary trajectory are not fully understood. If that person was talking to my wife, she would have said, you don't know anything about this. <laughs> we propose a novel hypothesis. The incorporation of the bones of the primary jaw joint into the middle ear has considerably increased the genetic, regulatory, and developmental complexity of the mammalian ear. This increase in the number of genetic and developmental factors may in turn have increased the evolutionary degrees of freedom for independent adaptations of the different functional ear units. The simpler ear anatomy in birds and reptiles may be less susceptible to developmental instabilities and disorders than in mammals, but also more constrained in its evolution. Despite the tight spatial entanglement or of functional ear components, the increased evolvability of the mammalian ear may have contributed to the evolutionary success and adaptive diversification of mammals in the vast diversity of ecological and behavioral niches observable today. A brief literature review revealed supporting evidence for this hypothesis. Ah, now I understand how the ear evolved. I got it. I feel much more better. So I think it's reasonable to question the ability of evolution to explain the complexity of human life. I think that that's just fair. I think it's reasonable to question the ability of evolution to explain the origin of life. I think that's fair. I do not feel that the evolutionary process puts a, a threat to my belief in God or creation. I think that a person of faith can believe in the evolution of species. We're going to have to shift gears now and look at some evidence for what the scripture says about evolution. Creation is definitely just not a Genesis 1 idea. In Genesis 1.26, God says, let's make man in our image and our likeness, let them have dominion over the birds of the, the sea, the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So humans, you've been made in God's image. You've got a unique role in the cosmos. God has given you responsibility to look after the place. Does this affect your worldview? Humans, Genesis 2-7 says, The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. We are created by an intimate way from a loving God. That beautiful picture of God breathing into us. You image God. We frequently sing a song here, we've got God's breath in our lungs, and how cool is that? Psalm 33, 6 and then 9 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts, for he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The word of the Lord created the heavens. God spoke it. John 1, 1, 3. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. All things were made through him. And not anything, that not, and not anything made that was made. So the cosmos is made through the spoken word of God, the logos, 
And Jesus is that agent of creation. But it's even more than that. Let's listen to Colossians 1, 15 to 20. Jesus is the means of creation. He is the sustainer of creation. He is the purpose of creation. He holds creation together. It gets even better. From Colossians 1, 15 to 20, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything we might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth, things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Creation is remarkably Christocentric. Remarkably Christocentric. I'm just going to have to skip a little bit just because in the interest of time. This idea that God's creation should make us wonder. God's creation should make us feel reassured. God's creation tells us remarkably about Jesus. God's creation tells us that God is an engineer, that God is an artist. We come back to this idea. Can we reconcile creation and evolution? Throughout Scripture, it says that God created. I don't think you can be a Christian, a developed Christian, and for the, your entire Christian life believe that evolution created the heavens and the earth. I think scripture screams to us, God created the heavens and the earth. I think to me as a person, it's intuitively difficult to comprehend the complexity and interdependent nature of life. Anatomical, physiological diversity and majesty happened unguided. I think you can also say that evolution of a existing species can happen and is probably true. Piper says we have a problem with the exegetical problem of, of tying evolution and creation together, especially in the, the Genesis story. And the problem that Piper raises is with the problem of death, that evolution requires death and death and death for it to take place. And in the garden, there was no death. So without the Genesis story, there's no Adam. Without Adam, there's no fall. Without the fall, there's no need for Jesus. Without that, Romans 5 is nullified. And Romans 5, as we know, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, like in the first three chapters of Genesis, and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people because all sinned, but the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? We need to be careful about trying to hybridize evolution and creation. We need the Genesis story to get to the Roman story, to get to the purpose of Jesus who redeemed us all. I'm going to close with this idea of two worldviews. The creationist worldview. God created the cosmos through Jesus for Jesus. He breathed humanity into existence. Humans are to image God. Creation was good, good, good. Sin came into the cosmos through Adam, and the heartbreak of the fall ensued. This led to death, suffering, pain, disordered relationship, work becoming toil, and even the creation itself groaned. Jesus came to buy us back, redeem us. Jesus would leave the 99 to pursue the one. He knocks at the door of your life to show you an eternal and pleasing purpose. What is that purpose? To love and serve God and to love and serve your neighbor as yourself. 
The naturalist view is that matter existed in a hyperdense ball and then exploded. And life came from rain on the rocks in a primordial soup. And then after billions of years and millions of mutations in a competitive, hostile environment, increasingly complicated proteins were allowed to come together and somehow code for incredible complexity that we currently see in life. Chaos led to organization. Humans gradually evolved from lower beings, apes. Time, chance, mutation, unguided events produced humans, and our purpose is to survive, compete, and reproduce. So I built this shed, and this is not a very complicated shed, but to me, it was complicated. I love this shed, and one of the main reasons I love it is I built it with my son. I built this shed with my son. I don't want anything messing with this shed. We have a woodchuck who's messing with the foundations of the shed, and I get maybe what God might see. He built this incredible stuff. He built your bodies. That's been messed with. He had to redeem it. He did. And now people are questioning him, saying, he didn't make that. That's where I'm going to leave it for you today, folks. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for this chance to be together. Thank you for the beautiful, beautiful creation you made. I believe it entirely. I don't apologize. For those who do struggle with this this issue of life, evolution and creation, let's keep a conversation going. Help to show each person the majesty of your creation and that it leads to worship and wonder and awe. And this crazy thing for Christians that it was done through Jesus, for Jesus, and Jesus holds it together. Wow, we serve a great king. We pray these things in your name. Amen.